Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 8, Timoleon and the End of the Second Sicilian War. A couple quick announcements. First, I have re-uploaded Episode 2, Dido's Drama, since I felt like the original recording was lacking. So if you had trouble listening to it the first time, feel free to go back and check out the updated recording. Second, if you have any questions, suggestions, or comments that you want to share regarding the podcast, you can now email me at laymanhistorian at gmail.com. Again, it's laymanhistorian at gmail.com. There's no the in front of the address. I'd appreciate any feedback you all want to give. Great, let's get down to business. Last time, we discussed how Carthage suffered several serious reverses especially the loss of their rich colony of Moitia at the hands of Dionysius, tyrant of Syracuse. Although the Carthaginians managed to ward off Dionysius after defeating him at the Battle of Cronium, they were perpetually on the defensive, entrenching themselves in their fortress cities such as Lilibaeum. Today, we bring the Second Sicilian War to a close with the life of the third great Sicilian ruler. Before we look at Syracuse, what was going on in Carthage during this time? The days had not improved since Carthage had met disaster under Himoko at Syracuse back in 396 BC. Another plague swept over the city, and rebellions broke out in Sardinia and Libya. Tempers were not improved by the high-handedness of Carthage's new leading man, Hanno the Great. Before we go any further... Hanno the Great gives us a good opportunity to address a recurring issue of Carthaginian history, so let's pause here to discuss Carthaginian proper names. If you haven't noticed already, the Carthaginians had a bad habit of reusing the same first names over and over again. As you read through a history of Carthage, you will see the names Hannibal, Hamilcar, Hasdrubal, Adderbal, etc., crop up literally countless times. To make matters even more complicated, sometimes the Carthaginians not only use the same first names, but also use the same nicknames for their great men. Thus, there is not only two, but three men who are called Hanno the Great in ancient Carthage. I will do my best to mitigate the confusion by clearly differentiating who we're talking about at the time and by highlighting which Hannibal, Hanno, or Hamilcar is best worth remembering. However, I wanted to make sure that you all were aware of this frustrating Carthaginian habit, as well as address your suspicions about why the same generals seem to live on for 400 years. Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about the first Hanno the Great. Hanno rose to power in Carthage after the Magonids were sent into retirement, following Himoko's disastrous showing at Syracuse. Extremely wealthy and ambitious, Hanno ruled Carthage for 20 years either directly or indirectly through family members. He continued the war in Sicily and attempted to open up a new front against Syracuse in Lower Italy, but by the 340s BC, Carthaginian interest in the war was waning. Similar to the Americans in Vietnam or the Russians in Afghanistan, 
the Carthaginian citizens began to grow weary of forever being called up to intervene in a land as fractured and volatile as Sicily. Numerous lives had been lost, fortunes spent, and disasters sustained in this seemingly never-ending struggle with Syracuse. Now, murmurs against Hanno's leadership in the war began to circulate throughout the city. Irritated by watching support for his leadership ebb away, Hanno resorted to drastic means to keep his power. First, he attempted to poison his fellow politicians at his daughter's wedding banquet, which in my mind seems very inconsiderate on his daughter's big day. Dodging this bullet at the last minute, the Council of Elders inexplicably failed to punish Hanno for trying to murder them, and merely passed a decree limiting expenditure at weddings. Emboldened, Hanno next planned a rebellion of 20,000 slaves, supported by local Libyan and Numidian tribes. He intended to use this rebellion to make himself tyrant of Carthage. Even for the council, this was too much. Captured, Hanno was tortured and then crucified, along with all the members of his clan. Meanwhile, back in Syracuse, events were just as cheery. It should come as no surprise that, following Dionysius' death, Syracuse entered another period of unrest and political chaos. Dionysius's son, Dionysius II, now ruled Syracuse, but he possessed none of his father's brilliance or ambition. Rather, he was a dissolute drunkard who preferred partying to running a government. In order to keep things straight, for the remainder of this episode, I will refer to Dionysius II just as Dionysius, for simplicity's sake. So don't confuse the Dionysius of this episode with the Dionysius of last time. That guy's dead. Although Dion, brother-in-law to Dionysius, tried to hold things together, the two soon fell to quarreling openly, deposing and exiling each other in turn. To make matters worse, Mercenary adventurers were always ready to throw their hat in the ring, making the situation that much more unstable. Sicily often had issues with roving mercenaries who had been disbanded by either Carthage or Syracuse after a campaign. Facing little prospects in their home countries if they returned, these men preferred to stick it out in the rich Sicilian countryside, living off the inhabitants, exacting tribute, overthrowing each other, and generally being a nuisance. One of these half-banditi, Hycetus, set up shop as tyrant of Leontina, a city northwest of Syracuse. He received an appeal from the losing faction in Syracuse to aid them against Dionysius, who had recently retaken the city after a round of exile which had placed him in a very bad mood. Hycetus, thinking to make himself tyrant of Syracuse, secretly sent messengers to the Carthaginians asking if they would help him overthrow Dionysius. While the Carthaginians pondered this message from Hycetus, the Syracusans sent out another cry for help, this time to their mother city of Corinth. Remember, Syracuse had been founded by Corinthians, and thus Corinth was in theory somewhat responsible for Syracuse's well-being. For all that, Corinth had never really taken any interest in Sicilian affairs, 
being preoccupied with her own troubles. Though exhausted by 50 years of fighting her neighbors and depleted due to Greece's countless wars, Corinth answered the Syracusan plea by organizing a small expedition of 3,000 hoplites. When it came time to debate who was to be given command of this expedition, an unknown commoner in the crowd nominated an elderly man named Timoleon to lead the army. This nomination raised many eyebrows among the citizens and was seen as so random as to lead the Greek historian Plutarch to exclaim that some god, as it would seem, put it into the man's mind to nominate him. Such was the kindliness of fortune. Twenty years earlier, Timoleon would have seemed like a more viable choice. Born to a noble family, Timoleon had fought alongside his older brother Timophanes in a war against the city of Argos. Timoleon had been distinguished in battle by single-handedly saving his brother by holding the enemy at bay until reinforcements could come up. But though he had saved his life, Timoleon came to regret his decision when Timophanes, later in very Dionysius I style, used his bodyguard to seize control of the citadel of Corinth in a bid to make himself tyrant of the city. Although Timoleon tried to reason with him, Timophanes was adamant, so Timoleon resorted to the extreme step of killing his brother in order to preserve Corinth's independence. Diodorus claims that Timoleon wielded the blade himself that killed Timophanes, but Plutarch insists that Timoleon stood by while two of his kinsmen did the dreadful deed. Regardless, Thanksgiving that year must have been pretty awkward. The Corinthians were torn over how to weigh Timoleon's decisive act. On the one hand, they honored him for his sacrifice on behalf of his home city, but on the other, they recoiled at the impiety of the murder. Unlike the rest of the Corinthians, Timoleon's mother had no qualms in cursing him in angry tones about his kinslaying. Burdened by his guilt and branded as a fratricide, Timoleon retreated into the countryside in despair and at one point even tried to commit suicide by starvation. For twenty years, Timoleon lived on the fringes of the city. Now, he was summoned back to Corinth to lead the relief force to Syracuse. The choice of Timoleon may also have been a welcome relief to some of Corinth's leading citizens. Although Plutarch claims that many noble Corinthians wished to be given the honor of leading the troops, the expedition was going to be fraught with peril and carried a high likelihood of failure. Syracuse was a powerful and wealthy city. Dionysius was well entrenched within the Ortigia, and a host of petty tyrants and marauding mercenaries, most of them likely hostile to more foreign intervention, posed seemingly insurmountable obstacles. The failure of the splendidly equipped Athenian expedition of 70 years before must have also come to mind. And of course, behind all these troubles loomed the vast might and bulk of Carthage, who could summon hosts of mercenary armies at will. Many Corinthians might have thought that it was better to fit out a small token force to fulfill their duty to Syracuse and send it off under an honorable enough old general to save face rather than risk one's own reputation on a fool's errand. Nonetheless, 
the Corinthian leader Telecleides sent Timoleon off with a stirring, if somewhat condescending speech, where he said for Timoleon to be noble and brave, explaining, For if thou contendest successfully, we shall think of thee as a tyrannicide, but if poorly, as a fratricide. What a pal. With his 3,000 men and nine ships, it is unlikely that Timoleon's force cut an impressive figure leaving the harbor of Corinth. Yet, he managed to slip past the Carthaginian ships which were patrolling to intercept him, landing in the north of Sicily. He did not receive a rousing reception from the Sicilians, who saw him as yet another adventurer come to trouble their island. The situation in Syracuse was no more promising. Hycetus had managed to take the city, but Dionysius still held out in his father's old fortress on the Archigia, while the Carthaginian navy roamed the harbor and coastline. Marching on Syracuse, Timoleon drove Hycetus out of the city and prepared to encircle the Artigia when, unexpectedly, messengers arrived from Dionysius saying that he surrendered the city to Timoleon. Bolstered by this stroke of good fortune, Timoleon allowed Dionysius to depart to Corinth, where he ended his days in the bottle's company. Surviving an assassination attempt instigated by Hycetus, Timoleon soon subdued both Syracuse and the surrounding cities to his control. Meanwhile, the Carthaginians sent a force of 60,000 men to besiege Syracuse, but again they let victory slip from their grasp and turned back, this time fearing treachery from their Greek allies. During this respite, Timoleon reorganized and revitalized the dispirited Syracusans. When he had arrived, he found the city nearly uninhabitable. Plutarch claims that so many citizens had perished that the marketplace of Syracuse was overgrown to the point that the horses were pastured there. The cities surrounding Syracuse were little better. Plutarch says that they were filled with wild deer and swine, which ran through their abandoned streets. To show that he was no new Dionysius, Timoleon leveled the palace at the Ortigia as a sign that the old regime was over. On its ruins, he erected a court of law, and he reorganized the government on more democratic lines by reforming the Syracusan constitution. This done, he sent letters back to Corinth asking for Greek colonists to be sent to repopulate the disheveled cities. Plutarch claims that as many as 60,000 from all over Greece jumped at this offer, and soon Syracuse and its allies were bustling with activity again. Timoleon settled these colonists on wide tracts of uncultivated land and encouraged them to turn to farming, and it is largely due to his efforts that Sicily developed its agriculture so much that it became the granary of Rome in later centuries. Finally, Timoleon. Realizing that Sicily would never have peace while every city was held by mercenary adventurers, began a ruthless war against all the other petty tyrants of Sicily, uprooting and pitilessly executing them all, in one way or another. Timoleon's reforms were so thorough and pervasive that some historians estimate that their influence shaped Sicily until the time of Caesar Augustus, 400 years after Timoleon's death. Back on the Phoenician side, the Carthaginians viewed Timoleon's reforms with growing distrust 
and alarm. Carthage had consistently struggled to restore peace and order on turbulent Sicily. After all, Carthage's interests on Sicily were commercial, not conquest-oriented. Prior to Timoleon's appearance on the scene, the Carthaginians had recently forged strategic alliances with various Sicilian tyrants like Hycetus, promising protection and assistance in return for recognition of Carthaginian supremacy on the island. This strategy had started to pay off, since by 344 BC, Carthage had extended her influence over the majority of Sicily, and now had a great opportunity to place a friendly ruler as tyrant over their great rival, Syracuse. In years past, the Carthaginians had been content to allow Syracuse to rot due to infighting and rebellion, but an invigorated Syracuse under Timoleon threatened their newfound hegemony over the island. Timoleon's actions must have also conjured up the dreaded memory of Dionysius I. Besides these concerns, Timoleon periodically sent his army to raid and plunder Carthaginian territory, showing that he wasn't afraid to cross swords with Carthage. Therefore, the Carthaginians felt that they had to act before Timoleon became too entrenched within the city. Outfitting an expedition under the generals Hasdrubal and Hamilcar, the Carthaginians marched out to destroy Syracuse once and for all. Plutarch claims that their army numbered at least 70,000 men, with a host of four-horse chariots and, unusually for Carthage, a large contingent of Carthaginian citizens, including the 2,500-strong Sacred Band. The Sacred Band was the pinnacle of Carthaginian military ethos. Although few Carthaginian citizens trained regularly for warfare, and fewer still sought a professional career in the army, the Sacred Band made up an elite corps of picked citizen troops. These men, scions of wealthy and distinguished families in Carthage, wore elaborate and ostentatious equipment, including purple and red cloaks, bronze and iron cuirasses overlaid with silver and gold, and beautifully adorned bronze helmets. Besides these, they wore heavy metal greaves and carried large, white hoplon shields. With spear and sword, they fought in the phalanx formation, holding the right wing of the army, the place of honor. Due to their elan and fighting prowess, they were rightly feared as the best troops the Carthaginians could field. When news of the Carthaginian approach reached Syracuse, the Greeks were dismayed. According to Plutarch, only 6,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry were willing to follow Timoleon out to meet the Carthaginians, and of these, a 1,000 turned back before the day of battle. Undismayed, Timoleon met the Carthaginians at the river Cremisus. Here, his men suffered another scare when they met a train of mules carrying parsley, which they interpreted as a bad omen since tombs were traditionally wreathed with parsley. Timoleon, however, quick on his feet, told his men that the parsley signified that they would be crowned victors in the coming conflict, since the Corinthians used reed parsley as a crown for the winners of their athletic games. Encouraged, the men set up camp across the river from the Carthaginians. A heavy mist covered the entire field as Timoleon arrived at the scene, but the Syracusans could hear the host of Carthaginians across the river as they marshaled into ranks to cross. When the fog lifted, 
Timoleon saw that the vanguard of the Carthaginian army, headed by the sacred band, had already gained a foothold on his side of the Cremissus. Seeing his chance, Timoleon deployed his cavalry to attack the Carthaginians and keep their lines from forming. A heated conflict ensued between the Carthaginian infantry, trying to form their phalanx, and the Hellenic cavalry. However, the Carthaginian chariots proved decisive. Like their forebear Jehu, they rode furiously up and down in front of the Carthaginian infantry, disrupting the Greeks' own line and forcing the cavalry to retreat. During the cavalry fight, Timoleon had formed his hoplites into their phalanx formation. Redeploying his reformed cavalry to attack the Carthaginian flank, Timoleon, though well past middle age, led his hoplites in person towards the Carthaginian line. Led by the sacred band, the Carthaginians met the attack and held firm, thrusting back the Syracusan advance. The fighting was fierce and brutal, but just when the tide seemed to be turning in Carthage's favor, a torrential hailstorm broke out above the armies. The hail and rain hit the backs of the Greeks, but flew in the face of the Carthaginians, who, besides being struck in the face by hail, could no longer hear their officers' orders over the peals of thunder. To make matters worse, the river began to overflow its banks and turn the entire area into a quagmire. The Carthaginians began to become bogged down due to the weight of their equipment, and many who slipped and fell were sucked into the mud and unable to rise again. Amidst the chaos, the lighter-armed Greeks drove the Carthaginians back in defeat. Most of the Carthaginians fled to the hills, but the sacred band valiantly held their ground until they were cut down to the last man. In all, 10,000 Carthaginian troops perished, of whom nearly 3,000 were full-blooded Carthaginian citizens. Besides the fallen, 15,000 men were taken prisoner and Timoleon's men gained vast plunder due to the wealth of the Carthaginian camp. Cremissus marked the greatest military disaster to date Carthage had ever sustained in Sicily, and from this point forward, no sizable contingent of Carthaginian citizen troops was ever sent overseas. Indeed, only in times of grave emergency would Carthage ever send her own citizens to war following Cremissus and the front lines of her armies were filled primarily with Libyans, Spaniards, and Gauls, with the Carthaginian citizens serving as officers. Having won great glory and riches due to his victories, Timoleon returned to Syracuse and ruled for several more years. Finally, pleading growing blindness and infirmity in his old age, Timoleon showed admirable restraint by relinquishing power in Syracuse, retiring to a country estate the citizens had awarded him out of gratitude. There, he lived out the remainder of his days with his wife and children, only coming to meetings of the assembly when grave matters were being discussed. When he died in 337 BC, he was buried at public expense, and his eulogists claimed that he overthrew tyrants, subdued the barbarians, repeopled the largest of the devastated cities, and then restored their laws to the Greeks of Sicily. But what of the Carthaginians, you say? 
Although Chromissus was undoubtedly a serious debacle, the Carthaginians quickly bounced back by continuing the war using the Syracusan tyrants as puppets. Their fleet managed to surround and kill small forces of Timoleon's mercenaries on at least two occasions, while they steadily reconsolidated their holdings in western Sicily. By 338 BC, the Carthaginians were able to make peace with the Syracusans, while keeping most of their old territory in the west. The Second Sicilian War, which had begun with Hannibal Mago's invasion nearly 70 years before, had ended. Although several significant actions had been fought, notably Cronium and Cremissus, and many important cities leveled, including Acragas, Salinas, and Moitia, the majority of the war consisted of short bursts of intense fighting, punctuated by longer periods of uneasy truce and small skirmishes. Though the Carthaginians managed to firmly entrench themselves in western Sicily, the Second Sicilian War was likely a huge drain on her commercial and military resources. By the end, Syracuse still remained a serious and ever-present threat. Indeed, the passing of Timoleon only proved to be another lull in the fighting, and it would not be long before another adventurer, last and most brutal of the tyrants of Syracuse, would come knocking at Carthage's door. This last man, famously cruel and treacherous, would hail himself as the new Alexander of the West, and Carthage herself would feel the weight of his arm. But that is a story for next time. Until we meet again, take care and read more history. History.